0: This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcast.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good evening, everyone. It's Rabbi Dr. Jack Cohn with the Torah Anytime Dating and Shalom Bayi series. Before we start tonight's wonderful presentation... Let me just have a shout out of a couple of things that are very important. First of all, I'd like to wish a Mazel Tov and an incredible congratulations to Devorah Leng on her recent wedding in Detroit. We worked together in Brach Hashem, it was beautiful in terms of how we strategized, and thank God it ended in wonderful. And to also Michael Latias from Los Angeles, who moved to New York, who came to me in the heat, uh, in the heart of the... Uh, the corona pandemic in New York a couple of months ago and Baruch Hashem together we worked and together we strived and struggled and last night he got engaged to a fantastic person. So Baruch Hashem and thank you for reaching out to me and giving me the confidence and allowing me to share my wisdom with you to help you build your wonderful Jewish home. Lastly as I always want to always point out Partners in Shaduchim is a partner of mine personally it's an incredible website, it's a tool, it's a platform for everyone who's single out there to put on to put their profile on there and to ensure that the word is out that about you, about a friend, you can put a profile of yourself, a friend, a relative and we're hoping, we're trying very much to get to about 5,000 people on the platform. I use it extensively when I search for potential candidates for my clients and students, so please if if you're a single or you know of a single and you'd like to make sure that they get the maximum exposure, go on partners in Shaduchim and put on their, their information, input their profile into their And if you can, act as their pal, their personal advocate and liaison, so that people know how to get hold of them. So that's an important thing. It's a most worthy organization that I really believe strongly in. I want you to go out there and make sure that you can help as many singles as possible by putting in as many people and creating profiles for them. Okay, Um, let me start with an interesting story, and then I will seg into tonight's discussion. It's all going to be a pivot from this week's Parsha of Parsha's Korach. Differences between husband and wife are often the focal point for problems in mar- marital harmony or disharmony. But the reality is that every home is a blend of differences. The letter bet when spelled out reads bet bite which means home. The letter bet consists of parallel lines, you know in Hebrew the letter bet is a horizontal line, a horizontal line and a vertical line. And that two horizontal lines that are connected by a third vertical line Parallel lines are lines which will never intersect, even if they were extending, to Pluto. It's the third line, the connector, that causes the home to be complete. Hashanah Wolby was one of the great Mustard giants, or ethics giants, of the 20th century. says, peace is the connecting of opposites. And isn't a more, there's no more appropriate analogy than to the combination or the marital connection between a husband and a wife. This was the essence of Yerushalayim, the city of peace which is Yerushalayim, city of peace. That's what it means in Hebrew. Where the various tribes of Israel met three times a year, their very differences cause them to love each other even more. It's our differences and our ability to tolerate people's differences that allows us to get along with individuals. No one is going to be the exact replica of us. So it's our it's incumbent upon us to get along with people that are different than us. How husband and wife can be so different and how much needs to be invested in understanding each other's nature and background can be put into focus by the following story, which was related to us by the husband himself. A couple of several months ago, married, was doing well, with the wife always being home to greet her husband. One day the husband arrived home, and his wife wasn't home. She had left no message on the answering machine, and after about an hour, the husband started to become concerned. After an hour and a half, the wife entered the house, and the husband blew up at her, Where were you? Where have you been all this time? Couldn't you at least let me know where you were and that you were going to be late? The husband then stalked out of the room in anger. A little while later, the husband came back and was ready to apologize to his wife for his blob. After all, he felt bad for the way he behaved. He found his wife crying, tears of joy. She had grown up in a home where she felt that no one ever cared about her or even noticed her. As a young girl, she had even run away only to return the next day to find that no one even missed her. Now that she saw how her husband actually cared about where she was and why she wasn't home, she knew that he truly loved her and that they would share a wonderful, happy life together. What for another woman would have been a traumatic blow-up was for this woman, because of her upbringing, an affirmation of love. This week's Parsha, Parsha's Korach, is not a simple Parsha, but its message can't be simpler. Don't fight. And that's going to be the theme of tonight's discussion. Whether it's dating couples, or it's husband and wife in marriage. Perhaps it's actually not so simple to distance ourselves from every crumb of discord or hatred or animosity between ourselves and others. But peace must be the cornerstone of every Jewish home. It is the week that marks our nation's keirach, keirach, Korach, meets ke'erach. It's like we're balding. True to his name, <coughs> Korach shaved so many good people from Klaal Israel, sending them into the belly of the earth, for whoever joined his rebellion was swallowed up into the belly of the earth, never to be seen again. We don't want to lose more people. Fighting eats up, eats us up from the inside and out, bringing out the worst in us. There was a brilliant rabbi called the Meshech Chachma in Eastern Europe, Ramea Simcha, and he asks why was being consumed into the earth the ideal death for Korach and all his followers? Wouldn't it have been more powerful if there would have been left behind some sort of sign that would remind the nation of their ramification of discord? Here Korach died. A big statue. Said at least we know about it. A place for people to pass and say, here's where Korach, the king of conflict, lies. But no, the Torah says he was swallowed up. No sign, no indication. We have no idea where he is. And the rabbi answers that death by being consumed into the earth is the sign. It's immensely symbolic. Because it teaches people that when a fight breaks out, it didn't happen overnight. It was festering in the belly. The final, outer display is only a sign that hatred had firsted deep inside for a long, long time. It's a sign of a deep-rooted illness that only came to the fore at this point, to a concealed hatred that finally exploded. And that's exactly what the Hebrew word of machlokis or argument implies. Because inside is the root called Machala, which means illness, sickness. An argument is the final result of deep-seated illness or sickness that eventually explodes like hot, angry lava from inside of a volcanic mountain. For this reason, the punishment of being swallowed into the ground, or Bli'ah, being swallowed up by the earth, is the most ideal and powerful one of all for Korach. From the surface, the earth looks calm and quiet, but once a month on Rosh Chodesh, a cloud of smoke rises from the ground, and from underneath, the Gemara tells us, Korach and his followers scream, Moshe Emes, v'torah so emes. Moshe is true, and his Torah is true. That's what Rabbi Barchanah reveals to us in Gemara. The Ramban teaches us that Korach had always been abnormally jealous of Moshe and Aharon. But he wasn't able to speak against them, because the nation loved them, and revered Moshe and Aharon so much. After the sin of the spies, and the ensuing punishment, Korach jumped at the opportunity to finally incite the despondent masses. He grabbed the opportunity when he saw it. In other words, all that time, Korach kept his mouth shut. He merely maintained the facade, awaiting an opportunity to instigate the Jews against Moshe Rabbeinu and foment the rebellion that he did. The final fight was only a display of what festered inside his heart for years. Remember that a fight does not happen overnight. If we bear a grudge against someone, it will eventually surface to the fore. The longer we let it fester, we're merely allowing it to boil a bit more until the lid just pops off. It's like the cloud that will soon burst into a turbulent storm. Don't ignore your feelings. Deal with them properly. When you address your hurts in a soft-spoken, honest manner, you'll bring the sun back to your heart and home, which is critical for when we deal with a dating partner or a husband dealing with a wife and a wife dealing with a husband. Don't allow it to fester because then eventually... It'll just blow up. Let us talk about Korach's exalted children, however, whom the Torah refers to as roses. In Tehillim it says, Lamnatsech al Shoshanim livne Korach, for the conductor on the roses by the sons of Korach. Korach's sons, babies, were swallowed up alive for sins they didn't commit. Only because they were in the vicinity of argument. Which tells us how bad how catastrophic it is to be even near people who argue. Because you can be pulled right in, swallowed right up with them. If you're in the vicinity of discord. And these children are screaming from under the ground, but nobody can hear their cries. Listen to them for how long, how we beg of you to rid your home of discord to clear your heart of animosity. As parents, we make the common mistake of thinking that when the grown children are around, we don't want them to hear us argue, so we'll do so under lock and key. But when it comes to the little ones, we think that fighting in their presence is okay. It's not. Standing in front of the baby and tossing harmful, flammable words at your spouse causes untold harm to the young child. At that time, Hashem says to us, "Ima, mommy, Abba, father, remember, innocent children were swallowed by the earth, as a result of Korak's argument and fight and rebellion. A child comes from a place of ultimate respect, and the upper spheres is where children come from. They're like angels, and so they can't handle the argument. A baby is still deeply connected to the upper worlds, where serenity permeates everywhere. A baby's soul can't bear the acrid acid and smell of machlokas. Even if you're arguing in a language you think the child does not understand, even when the children are sleeping, note that know that their souls hear every word. They are very sensitive, our precious children, and we must do our best to guard their purity. If machlokis is so terrible, if argument is so terrible, and Korach was an intelligent person, what did he see in this nonsense that he allowed himself to be pulled into leading a rebellion that will eventually cause him to go to hell and lose out on any share in the next world? Rashi tells us, what was the source behind his behavior that caused him to lose everything? And the answer is, his wife. The Medrash explains and attributes to Korach's demise that says that the construction and destruction of the home belongs to the woman. It tells us in Hebrew, in Proverbs, Chachmas Nashim bansa besa ve'iveles Viadeha te The wisdom of a woman builds her home and the foolish woman with her hands destroys her home. Let's give you an IQ test. It's a very simple IQ test. But it's more than enough to let you know how intelligent you truly are. Are you at peace with everyone? Are you at peace with other people? If you're picking a fight with everyone who comes your way, listen to what our rabbis are telling us. It's the brilliant person who manages to maintain the peace, and the not-so-smart one who is foolish and destroys it. If you don't fight with anyone, you're a genius. Let's understand the wisdom of the woman. What does the word build mean? To us, it's adding another floor to the house, another room, another brick. And to destroy means to remove that which was built. The word Hashem uses to warn Moshe, and He tells him, you must not destroy what you, that which you have climbed. It's very important. When a person attempts to reach heights where he doesn't belong, Rashi tells us, they separate themselves from the position of people and bring on destruction. When they fight and they argue to try to get something which is not coming to them, all they'll do is destroy whatever they built. Let us analyze the deeds of Korach. The Torah tells us, Vayikach Korach, Korach Tok, To which Rashi asks, What did he take? And Rashi answers, He took himself. From where? From himself. What happened here? Hashem told Korach, You're so good as you are. And Korach replied, I don't want to be who I am. I want to be like Moshe or Aaron, anyone but me. And he split himself. Unkulus, the great commentary tells us, I'm separating myself from myself, is what Korach said. I'm dividing myself into two other people. I want to be someone else. I want to be them. I want to be Moshe Nahar. I don't want to be me. Which is the absolute opposite of how we're supposed to feel and behave in this world. We're supposed to be happy with ourselves. Happy with what Hashem made us. Our Rabbis tell us, what are, what are you removing yourself from? Your very self. What's wrong with what you are? Nothing. Except that we're jealous of others. When we say the word Ivelis, which is a foolish woman, the Malbin explains that a foolish is derived from the word Ulai, perhaps. Instead of bringing satisfaction and peace into your home, you fill it with doubt and suspicion. When a person sees the world through such a perspective, the person in the house who suffers most is the spouse and the children. The children, they'll grow up and move on. But what about your spouse? They're doomed to live with that person forever, gradually absorbing the negative, destructive poison. So, the Tanakh, or the Torah, the Holy Bible, lists the list of the least smart people. The first three medals are earned by women. First of all, who took the gold medal for the most foolish person in the Bible? None other than Korach's wife. When her husband returns home bald from his inauguration as a levy, she says to him, what's this? Because every levy had to be shaved completely, from top to bottom. And she sees her husband bald. He says, I'm a levy, he said proudly. You're a fool, she says to him. They're playing a trick on you, Korach's wife tells him. Tell me, did Moshe shave like that too? No, he sat at the table with long hair and jewels, but no, you look like a fool, totally shaven. You baldy, she says under her breath, injecting a strong dose of frustration into her husband. And the silver medal for the most foolish person in the Bible goes to Zeresh, Haman's wife from Purim, whose name can be read as Zerash, this pauper in Hebrew. You're pathetic, she says to her husband Haman. Everything you have, the position, the title, the riches, it's all worthless if Mordechai doesn't bow down to you. And she destroyed her husband, even though he was one of the wealthiest people in the world, just because he didn't get Mordechai to bow down to him. And the last but not least, Izevel gets the bronze prize. When she sees her husband, the king Ahav, she says, Zevel, which means manure, do-do, look where you are and look where I am. This was a Jewish king who married a non-Jewish woman and never converted her. She says to him, I'm the daughter of the king of Sidon, a Gentile country. You're supposed to be worthy of me, but look how lowly you are. These women, whom our rabbis see as unintelligent, dragged their husbands out of this world. Each of these men had the potential to be the greatest of their time. But because their destructive wives had impossible expectations of them, they lost everything in the worst of ways. Dear Jewish women, you're the greatest builders of your home. The responsibility to honor line your very hands, to construct, to build, to create a home that is saturated with peace, satisfaction, and true joy. May you always merit utilizing your gifts to build a fantastic home. Let's get on with this issue of arguing because it's so destructive and can be so prevalent and destroys people. I have a client, for example, right now that I'm helping to try to get married. Hasn't spoken to his father in three years. Tells me he never hopes to speak to him. He even went as far as to tell me that he hopes that he should pass away soon. And this is not something which is abnormal. We see this, unfortunately, all too often. And so we have to get to the root of what creates argument. And we need to nip it in the bud now as singles or as married couples. Let's establish a concept. It's normal for people to disagree. Again, it is normal for people to disagree. We all have our own ways of looking at things. We all have our own needs and preferences. We all have our own tastes. But it's not inevitable inevitable that these disagreements or preferences must create a fight. Because Because we have different opinions, must that lead to an argument? They can become topics of discussion and even debate. And it can be done peacefully. What's the difference between a fight and a discussion? When you discuss an issue with someone, both parties speak with respect to the other person. Both listen to what the other person has to say, and each one has a chance to express his or her own thoughts and opinions in a calm manner. A fight is when voices are raised and tempers flare. Many things that are said are inflammatory and unnecessary. Insults are thrown at one another and feelings are hurt. In a fight, both parties lose out. In an argument, both parties lose out. People will have different feelings about what exactly makes a fight. Some people who have intense natures and speak with much emotion might enjoy a lively give and take. While other people who usually speak in a calmer manner might consider that to be a fight. If either spouse in a marriage considers something to be a quarrel, then that's a quarrel. At times you will need to agree to disagree. Some people find this fairly easy to accept. But there are husbands and wives who feel much discomfort if they have different opinions on important topics, even though there isn't practical everyday difference. At times, both husband and wife want to express their opinions first. Each is impatient to say what he or she feels that they need to say, which causes frustration and can transform a discussion into an argument. If you find that you are constantly being interrupted by your spouse, you can simply say, I listen to you, so please give me five uninterrupted minutes and listen to me. If you haven't listened to the other person yet, so do so for five minutes. Or say, please listen to me for five minutes, and then I'll listen to you without interruption. Be resolved to express your thoughts and opinions without argument. There are many issues in a marriage about which you might have a stalemate. You have a choice to keep arguing about them over and over again, or decide to leave your differences unresolved but to enjoy other aspects of each other. When you see that there will not be a settlement to the argument, state your position. State it clearly, and then just plain stop. This is similar to an incident that was reported on the BBC, which is British television. A customer in a cafe said to a waiter, please give me a cup of coffee without cream. The waiter came back without the coffee, and asked, we're out of cream today. Would you like your coffee without milk? Which seems bizarre. Some people tend to argue without listening to what the other person is saying. This waiter obviously wasn't listening to what the the, uh, the customer was asking. About such people it's been said that the difference between a monologue and a dialogue is that in a monologue only one person is talking to themselves, and in a dialogue two people are talking to themselves. Before arguing, listen to the other person's position. At times you will see that you have less to argue about. Just listen without trying to ram over them. Even when you do feel the need to disagree, you'll be able to address the actual points that were raised. When you argue about a specific issue, keep the discussion to the issue at hand, without going off on tangents. By bringing up arguments and resentments about other issues, nothing is going to be resolved, it'll only cause the problem to fester and get worse. Only hurt and angry feelings will be the result. Don't say anything that would be a put down of your spouse. For example, if you have any sense, you would realize that I'm right and you are wrong. That is something you do not say. People have subjective tastes. Some view them as absolute realities. In issues of taste, instead of saying you have awful taste, you can say I prefer something different without attacking the other person, without attacking the spouse. When two people disagree, if both parties repeat the essence of what the other one said to show that they understand the other person's position, it helps to keep the situation under control. In issues of opinion, instead of saying you are all wrong or you don't know what you're talking about, You can say, I hear what you're saying, let me express it another way. Or there's another way to look at the matter without offending anyone else. It can also be helpful to say something like, I can see why you feel that way, let me explain how I feel about it. The more respect you show to the other speaker, the more likely it is that the other person will listen to you also with respect. You are establishing the ground rules. Case number one, a lady writes, or a man, I'm not sure, we were married for five months and were shocked about how much of the time we argued. When we first met, we seemed to agree on all most important issues of life. During the engagement, all discussions about plans for the wedding went smoothly. We were both certain that we would have an ideal marriage. But after the excitement of the wedding and the Sheva Brachas was over, we found ourselves quarreling and fighting over scores of trivial matters. From things like toothbrushes and who takes out the garbage and what time it is and how we should have the shades, open or closed and how, how low we should set the air conditioner Buying food for Shabbos, cleaning the house, inviting guests or going places were all grist for the mill, all topics of argument for our verbal battles. If there were at least two ways of doing something, we would find ourselves arguing over the best way to do it. Then we visited an uncle and aunt of mine in another city and stayed for three days. I had been at their home before, but now I noticed things that I never noticed before. They were very different from one another in personality and in background. They often had different opinions on things. But they were consistently at harmony in their home. They openly discussed differences of opinion with each other. And I was able to see how they talked calmly and respectfully about their plans. And about things that needed to get taken care of. They both would listen patiently to the other one. And each one would listen to what the other person had to say on on a matter. Then they would either take turns as to whose preference they would follow this time. Or they would find a third alternative on which they both could agree. When I was single, I saw and I heard them discussing issues peacefully. But it didn't register with me that this was quite an accomplishment when you're interacting with someone who's so different from you. My own parents were much more similar, and their life situation didn't call for so much negotiating. Each one had his or her domain, and things just worked out. Now, however, I saw a model in my uncle and my aunt that was necessary for my own marriage. My spouse and I each perceived our disagreements as an attack an attack on each other's judgment and taste. We would try to get to the other person to agree that we were right until we tried to force them that we were right. I pointed out this pattern to my spouse and suggested that we both watch my uncle and aunt's pattern of behavior carefully to learn how can we become like them? How can we talk like them? How can we disagree and yet still not argue? I saw that this was the beginning of my work because we had an immediate argument on whether to test this out. I don't think it's proper for us to discuss the way they communicate, my spouse said to me. Why not? I asked. It's an invasion of their privacy. I'm not suggesting we eavesdrop, only that we listen to how they speak to each other during the meals we have with them. They see us sitting right in front of them at their table, and they don't seem to mind that we're listening to what they're saying. I'm 100% sure that if I ask my aunt and uncle if we can learn from them, they would both be thrilled to help us out. But I don't feel a need to mention it to them. My spouse agreed with me. I was proud of myself for the way I handled that discussion. Previously I would have gotten angry and said, you don't care about our marriage. You want to keep fighting and arguing. Don't you? This never went over too well and I desperately wanted to change things. I'm grateful for the Hashkacha protest with the divine supervision of having role models for those three whole days which ended up completely transforming our marriage and stopping the discord. Case number two. My wife and I would fight like cats and dogs over both major and minor issues. As soon as one of us said something the other didn't like, the battles began. We were quite well off financially. We had money. And this was part of our problem. We had enough money to buy many of the things we wanted, but we argued over all the details. We had differences of opinion about which organization should receive donations. We argued over how many guests to have for Shabbos. The list went on and on over all the things that we argued about. But we received a loud wake-up call one day. My wife and I were in the middle of our daily round of arguments. The telephone rang, and listen to what happened. On the other end was someone who had a complaint about a business deal we had made together. If I had been in a positive frame of mind, he writes, I could have handled it smoothly. The man was upset, and I could have calmed him down. But the argument with my wife had aroused my anger already. I told the person who called me, You're an idiot if you feel you could win a lawsuit if you sue me. See if I care. I guarantee you, I'll definitely come out on top and beat you in court. My challenge was effective, but not in the direction that I wanted. The fellow raised his voice and said, We'll see who's the real idiot here. I'll see you in court, buddy. I had to hire an expensive lawyer, and the case dragged on for two years, and it cost me over $200,000 in legal bills. All because I was angry at the time that I took his call, and I was fighting with my wife. Even though the lawsuit was so stressful, it brought my wife and I close. We now had a common enemy, and we stood together. We both saw the harm of how our angry arguments had cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we decide to take it upon ourselves to be careful to speak respectfully to each other, even when we disagreed. Case number three. It might seem to others to have things under control when the stress is high, and I must agree that I do. But it's all because of my sensitive husband, a woman writes. Whenever I feel totally overwhelmed and ready to give up, my husband will give me a reassuring smile and say just the words that I need to hear. You've been through this before, he would say to me. And you've managed exceptionally well. I know that you can handle it. His total belief in me has enabled me to believe in myself. What a great piece of advice. This is how you build the other person. You build, you don't destroy. You show them that you believe in them. You motivate them. You compliment them. You use positive language. I would thank him profusely for all his help. And he would say to me, You're the one who manages so well. I only saw a few words of appreciation. Say a few words of appreciation, he said to me. His so-called few words of appreciation was like the work of an artist. He always knew exactly what to say to make me feel good. When I feel discouraged, he so thoroughly was confident in my abilities to handle things that it's almost impossible for me not to believe in myself because he believed in me so much. If you would ask what exactly he said to me, I would be hesitant to answer you. The answer might seem too simple. He doesn't give long speeches. He doesn't preach or give me unwanted advice. But what he does do is point out how I've done things so well in the past. He points out how much I mean to him. He points out how I pre- he appreciates all that I've done for him. When I ask him such as, he just smiles and says, if I would start giving specific details, I'd be taking away from the totality of all that I owe you. Come on, I would protest. You're so confident and confident. You don't need me. I only seem like that on the outside, my husband would say in all sincerity. But I know that I wouldn't be able to do all that I did without you. Your essence is precious to me, he would say. It's not just this thing about you or that thing. It's your entire entirety, he would say to me, that makes my life so great. When he says things like that to me, I'm touched on a deep level. I find it hard to believe that I mean so much to him. But I see that he's sincere in what everything he's saying to me. I do believe in him. I do think he's the greatest, but I don't think this way just in order to make him feel good. I think this way because it's the truth, it's the MS. And I guess that's how he feels about me. It wasn't like always like this, however. In the beginning of our marriage, we argued. And we fought quite regularly. It took us a long time to get used to each other's habits and idiosyncrasies. Ladies and gentlemen, it's important to point out, you don't start a marriage perfect. There's going to be stuff. But what we can learn, what's the message from these stories, is that if you put your head to the ground, to the ground stone, and you work on it, you can change anything. Where there's a will, there's a way. There was a turning point in our marriage, and for this I am thankful to my husband. We were in the midst of another one of our typical arguments. We both were feeling bad about what the other person had said. When all of a sudden my husband said in a very emphatic voice, That's enough of this already. I was taken by the way he said it. He had enough of the arguing. And then he went on, I've been thinking lately about our marriage, my dear. We're causing each other so much pain and for no reason. We both love and care about each other. Let's agree to discuss any disagreements we ever had in a mutually respectful way. Suddenly he had an epiphany. I was thrilled to hear this, of course I agreed with my husband. We were both committed to ever overcome any negative feelings that we had. We were committed to treat each other the way the Torah requires. And since we were both dedicated to improving our marriage, we did. My marriage is now so wonderful that it seems like the rough part was from a different lifetime. As I think in retrospect about the early part of our marriage, I recall the thoughts that went through my mind. I remember that although my marriage was a constant struggle, my spirit was unbroken, because I knew that there was promise of renewal. One can always change. I felt at the core of my soul that Hashem had a purpose for me in this world. Oh, how I wished at the time I knew what was my purpose. I had many unanswered questions, but the big one for me was, for what purpose did I suffer so much in my marriage? What can I do with the knowledge that my experiences have given me? Now I know at least partly why I suffered. We started out with a rough marriage, And we transformed it into one of spiritual beauty. I'm able to give encouragement to young women whom I meet who seem to be suffering in their marriage. I realize that everyone's situation is different. But I believe that many other couples are like us. Once they learn how to disagree with mutual respect, they can begin to bring out the best in each other. When you do this, you don't need to work on your marriage. Your appreciation for each other makes you both feel good about each other and about yourself. And so it's important to seek win-win solutions. We all have needs. We all have wants and wishes. It's normal that our needs, wants and wishes will sometimes clash with those of the person to whom we are married. Just as a couple can disagree peacefully, so too can they work out win-win solutions. There are solutions, these are solutions that you work out together in a way that both your needs are met and your spouse's needs are also met. And satisfied, you're both satisfied with the results. When either a husband or a wife tries to ensure that only he or she will win, this is not going to be a win-win. It's going to be a win-lose. Or even lose-lose. Unless both a husband and a wife feel that the other wants him or her to have his or her needs met, these are likely to be, they're likely to be hurt feelings and neither will be happy. Be willing to make a sacrifice. We all know that you have to give up something in order to get something. The question for you to keep in mind is, how can I have my needs met while at the same time, my spouse also can have their needs met? Definitely this takes more work than just one party being satisfied. But all the efforts exerted in finding such solutions are a wise investment. What can I do to ensure that not only are my needs met, but my spouse's needs are also met? In some situations, a win-win solution might mean that this time one of the parties gets his or her way, and the next time there's a disagreement, they get the right of way. We can negotiate an agreement that both would find acceptable. If you feel that your spouse is trying to solve a situation in a way that will be a win-lose, you might find it helpful to explicitly say, Honey, let's try to find a way that will be a win-win. Let's see how we can work this out in a way that both our needs are met. Be careful not to attack your spouse. Again, please be careful not to attack your spouse. In most situations, it isn't necessary to say outright. That's not fair. You're trying to take advantage. I mean, I should lose and you should win. And that you're considering your position and not mine. Be careful of that. By just stating that you want it to be good for both of you, you're presenting this request in the way most conducive to creating goodwill. Here's a story. Who won this time? This was the theme of our arguments. Winning rather than loving was a key element in our marriage. Whenever my spouse and I disagreed, the issue of who was the winner and who was the loser was uppermost in both of our minds. When we had minor arguments, winning and losing was almost like a sports competition. But when we argued over major issues, the battle to win was more like an all-out war. At times, this was even more seemingly trivial issues, but the underlying themes were major to us. We saw that we were not able to resolve our differences on our own. We both found it difficult to speak to a third party about our fights. But after an especially ugly argument one day, we came to the conclusion that the pain we were suffering was so bad that we just had to do something about it. We could not go on anymore this way. The person we consulted asked us to describe a few of our arguments to see what they looked like, what they sounded like. It was clear that regardless of the content of our arguments, the main goal for both of us was to come out on top and be the winner. It wasn't important what the the content was, just the idea of victory. This was especially difficult to determine because we didn't have a referee or a judge. So he gave us a homework assignment. After each argument that week, we, we should both write down who we think won. We should keep a journal of the topics argued about and our criteria for determining the winner. Before we reported that week's win and loss record, we were asked, looking back at this week, how do you feel about your arguments and your fights? We both answered that we felt awful about them. Even the winners left with a bad taste. And the loser feels even worse. So in essence, he told us, you both lose out by trying to win, don't you? And it was obvious that our pattern was painful for both of us. This coming week, look at yourself as two people who are friends on the same team. It was suggested to us, act as if it was important to both of you that you should both end up winners and neither of you a loser. We had been aware of the idea of win-win, but our automatic reactions were, I need to win and you need to lose, which is terrible and catastrophic for a marriage. Spending a week on making certain we both felt like winners was a wonderful experience. We were both rooting for each other and came up with a few creative solutions that we never thought of before. Here's another case. I love to have guests for Shabbos. The more people, the better. I consider this a kindness or a chesed of a high priority. It is also very difficult for me to refuse someone who asks me if they can come over to our house. And many guests ask if they can bring along a friend or two who need a place to eat for Shabbos. My wife also likes to do chesed, but she has a stronger need for privacy. Moreover, she's the one who does most of the work when we have guests. When someone calls me up to ask if they can come over to our house for Shabbos, My tendency is to say, of course you can come for Shabbos. We're happy to have you as our guest, without even consulting his wife. Let me check, he would say. My wife complained that this wasn't fair to her. When she feels too tired for company, she wants to be able to refuse, but she knows that I'll feel disappointed. Her biggest objection was, you make me sound like I'm the mean one. The person sees that you're happy to have him over, but I'm the one who refuses. Right from the start, you should give a cooler response until you consult with me. I argue that this will make the person feel unwelcome. Then even if we let him be our guest, he might feel bad that we were hesitant at first. I asked someone for a suggestion as to how to handle this. And this very smart person told me, definitely you should sound enthusiastic about having the person be your guest for Shabbos. But you can say, we'd love to have you as a guest, but let me first check out the present plans this Shabbos with my wife, to see if this week will be okay. This way, in case my wife is not up to having company, it doesn't sound if I'm blaming her. The reason for not having the person over sounds impersonal. This approach was acceptable to us both. My wife and I, another case, had frequent fights over a number of issues that were important to both of us. We spoke to some people for advice about what we could do to improve our situation. Some of the ideas were we heard it we heard lasted for a long time, but after a week or two we once again repeat our old problematic patterns. The technique that finally helped us make a lasting change was our writing a contract of agreement. We each wrote five rules that we would both follow. Since we would both gain a lot if the other person kept to the rules that he or she had agreed upon, we were highly motivated to follow our own rules. And these are the rules that we decided to agree on, which would help us stop arguing. I agree to greet you enthusiastically every time I walk into the house. I agree to talk without raising my voice. If I ever do raise my voice, you just need to say, please speak in a quieter tone. I agree to accept this without arguing that I'm speaking in a quiet tone. I agree to discuss your thoughts regarding any plans that I make that will affect you. And I will not make plans unilaterally, but I will always take your feelings and thoughts and opinions into consideration. I agree to stop using the expression, there's no defense like a good offense, since I know that it bothers you. I agree not to speak to you with sarcasm. I agree to study with you at least three times a week. It took a lot of effort on my part to keep to these rules consistently. But since I saw that my wife was also making the effort to keep the, the, the her set of rules, I kept reviewing my list with a strong sense of commitment. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to be very careful. Arguing can destroy our lives. It can destroy our dating courtships. It can destroy our marriages. And as we see from this week's partial, it can take you right into the next into the next abyss of hell which is what happened to Korach. Let's stay away from it, because it can be destructive. Anyone out there in the world who would like my help in Shaduchim, or helping them to put together a top 10 list, or would like my assistance in evaluating a relationship that they're in, whether it's dating, or whether it's a, a marital relationship, please feel free to reach out to me on WhatsApp, or text me, or call me to 305-206-1916 from anywhere in the world, or simply email me at drjackcohen18 at gmail.com, drjackcohen 18 at gmail.com. Let me wish you a great week, a Shabbat Shalom, and a fantastic next couple of days. Kol Tov. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class, brought to you by ToraanyTime.com.